People are strange when you're a stranger. Faces look ugly when you're alone. Women seem wicked when you're unwanted. Streets are uneven when you're down. When you're strange, faces come out of the rain. When you're strange. Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Now, in this episode, I'll be looking at Charles Brockton Brown's 1799 novel, Arthur Mervyn. This novel was set in 1793 in the middle of a yellow fever epidemic. And it essentially is doing with the maturation of a young man as he goes from the countryside to the city, also goes from a life of crime to a, a respectable life. And in some ways, it sort of seems to parallel the light, the American Revolution in this kind of transition to kind of personal independence. It's it's a very American novel in this way that in in how it's about a young man kind of finding his own way in the world and kind of reaching that that independence. It's it's overcoming the 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 tendency to be duped or to be controlled or to be directed by by others. Um, it's it's fit in the Gothic tradition. I guess all of Charles Brockton Brown's novels do essentially fit into the, the broader American Gothic tradition, but it's not quite as dark or bleak, haunting as, as Whelan. There isn't really any supernatural elements. It's more about the, the odd things that happen to people, odd coincidences, the relationships between people that seem to just pop up and really don't have any clear explanation that those kind of creepy circumstances that that affect people there's a lot of people who are connected and we don't see those connections till later on in in the story i think the biggest thing that people focus on when they think of this novel is of course the small or the not the smallpox the yellow fever epidemic in philadelphia which creates a lot of the more haunting imagery in in the story um, now as the story begins we begin with a preface in fact the second word word of the novel is evils so the evils of pestilence, which this city has lately been afflicted, will probably form an era in its history. And Brockton Brown gives a very interesting introduction in this preface where he talks about things like the need to cooperate, the need to work together in, in urban environments and, and how urbanization seems to lead itself towards this duty of providing justice and humanity to all people. Quote, men only require to be made acquainted with distress for their compassion and their charity to be awakened. He that depicts in lively colors the evils of disease and poverty forms an imminent service to the sufferer by calling forth benevolence on all those who are able to afford relief. And he who portrays examples of disinterestness and intrepidity confers on virtue the notoriety and homage that are due to it and arouses in the spectators the spirit of salutary emulation. End quote. And uh, this really makes me think of a kind of like the overall trend of urbanization in America, how as the country became more urban, people were forced to think about their relationships with other people in new ways, right? We see the rise of new civic organizations, the settlement houses, the sewer socialists of the early 20th century, the different civic organizations, the religious organizations, urban missionary activities. All this was about kind of reaching out to one's brothers and sisters in, in this new environment. And now that we're in a world that's becoming increasingly urban, more and more societies are undergoing the same transition in values where they have to rethink who they are and how they relate with one another because their values are rooted in the countryside. 
And, and that's the case with Arthur Mervyn. His values are rooted strongly in the countryside, and, and he comes to find himself to be an urban person. And he, becomes, he finds himself deceived and, and all these other things that happen to him because he's in the city. That, um, those are the things you have to, he's going to have to work through as a character. And we, we, we appreciate watching. We, 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 part of the pleasure of the novel is watching him overcome these challenges and become a new person by the end of the story. So in that sense, it's kind of an optimistic novel. Um, now, the novel itself is set, it's in two parts. It's about 400 pages long. It's, it's the longest of the three novels by Charles Brockton Brown that we're going to look at. Um, it's in two parts. Each is about 25 chapters or so. Each is about as long as Wheelins. So it's, a, it's about two Wheelins in length. Um, in fact, the novel does seem to have two parts to it that seem to divide up nicely. The first part's more about this young man explaining how he happens to be associated with a criminal. And the second part of the novel deals with deals with him really becoming a new person and, and becoming independent. The narration in the, in the novel is not consistent. It starts out being narrated by this guy, Dr. Stevens, who finds Arthur Mervyn in, you know, sick and dying in, in, in the city. And by the end, it's, it's, it's Arthur Mervyn doing the, doing the narration himself. So Mervyn becomes mature in that way as well, in the fact that he's able to take over control of, of the narration of his story. Now, a lot of the story, though, is told in embedded stories, stories within stories. So the same problems of un unreliable narration we ran into in Wheeland, where or we only had one narrator there, but there's good reason to think she wasn't totally honest. Even though in Wheeland you have a bit of the embedded narration because you had characters telling stories to, to Clara and Clara rel relating them. But it's much more complex here where you have a lot of, of embedded narration that, that you know, it's, there's not a consistent um, narrator throughout the whole thing. You know, but we start with, in, in chapter one, we start with Dr. Stevens. And he just tells, talks a story about how he finds Arthur Mervyn you know, sick and dying. And it's right in the first page, this diseased man is located. And then he's brought to the home of, of this Dr. Stevens. And originally, the, the, like the, the family and the neighbors don't like this. They, they think, why would you bring this diseased man into this home, put us at risk, potentially damage our lives, you know, and, and maybe you shouldn't do that is, is kind of the suggestion. And then he thinks about this and finally comes to the conclusion that his humanity, he has a duty, you know, his duty to humanity trumps, you know, this kind of the safety of his, his family. And the reason he makes this choice is because he actually thinks about, he ponders the actual suffering that, that this character, Arthur Mervyn, is, is feeling. Um, we don't learn much about him early on. He, he says who his name is. He's well enough to say his name. And all he really talks about early on is that he wants to go back to the countryside. He wants to go back to farming. That's all he knows. Quote, this is, this is him relating what Arthur Mervyn tells him. The country was open to him, and he supported that there was no part of it in which food could not be purchased by his labor. He was unqualified by his education for any liberal profession. His poverty was likewise an insuperable impediment. He could afford to spend no time in the acquisition of a trade. He must labor not for future emolument, but for immediate subsistence. Now, Dr. Stevens points out, well, that's not entirely true. You have abilities. You have skills. Why can't you be, you know, you know how to write. Why can't you find other professions in, in the cities? There's a lot of opportunities for you in the cities. 
and he doesn't want to. Right away, we're jumped right into that kind of Jeffersonian-Hamiltonian debate about the future of America. And after the American Revolution, of course, it was the Washington and Hamilton that were in power. And they pushed this more trade-focused, urban-focused, good, good relations with Britain, commercial manufacturing. Of course, Hamilton writes his report on manufacturing during Washington's, I think it's his first term. And Jefferson, is, his critique is that the future of America should be different from Europe. We don't want to become too much like Europe. We're in a new world. We should, you know, so he advocated this agrarian idea where people would be self-sufficient farmers. Now, Arthur Mervyn already acknowledges the weakness of that because he says he's going to be an urban day laborer, right? Work for wages. But still, I, I see this tension here between the rural and the urban future of America. And in that way, it's very much a novel of the American Revolution and the debates about the future of America that took place um, at that time. Now, the novel immediately takes an odd route when a friend of Dr. Stevens named Wortley introduce, you know, he enters the story and he recognizes Arthur Mervyn. And at first he doesn't do much, but he just kind of recognizes him. And then later on he tells Dr. Stevens that, you know, this Arthur Mervyn guy, he is an associate of this guy who scammed me, this guy Welbeck, who kind of defrauded me of a bunch of, of money. And when Dr. Stevens approaches Arthur Mervyn on that, he says, well, yeah, to tell the truth, I knew Wortley and I was associated with this guy who defrauded him. I didn't have anything to do with that. That was him. That was all on him. But to be honest, you know, I was sort of there is what he eventually admits. But then he goes into his tale and he starts to tell his, his broader story. And that's how chapter one essentially ends is this, this transition to... Arthur Mervyn's tale. And for much of the rest of part one, we're going to be in Arthur Mervyn's mind. Once in a while, Dr. Stevens will come out and take control of the narration, but by and large, it's Arthur Mervyn who's telling a story from chapter two on. So the story begins in chapter two with, with Arthur Mervyn's background. And, you know, he's essentially an orphan. He doesn't really have, you know, his mother died, leaving him alone. His father's nature was such that he was not I mean, he's not technically an orphan, but his father's nature is such that he doesn't really want to help him make it on his own. He's very much disturbed by the death of his mother, and his father takes a, a lover in the, in the form of Betty Lawrence, who's like a quote-unquote quote a wild girl from the pine forest of New Jersey. She became a servant of, of her father, and her father takes her as a lover, and basically, as a, becomes, she becomes a stepmother of sorts to Arthur Mervyn. And Mervyn can't live in that situation at all, so he's forced to flee. It seems that all the real authority in the family was in Arthur Mervyn's mother. Quote, my father was a man of slender capacity, but of temper, easy and flexible. He was sober and industrious by habit. He was contented to be guided by the superior intelligence of his wife. Under this guidance, he prospered. But when that was withdrawn, his affairs soon began to betray marks of unskillfulness and negligence. So that's the situation. So um, when she starts, this Betty Lawrence starts this affair with, with, um, with her father, and then later on she has an affair with a quote-unquote clownish fellow. Her father, his, his father's jealous about this. And so not only is she, you know, basically stealing her father, his father from him, he's also, she's also cuckolding him. There's actually quite a bit of class prejudice in here. Now, Arthur Mervyn's poor, but he seems to express a bit of class prejudice towards this, this Betty Lawrence, um, disliking her because she's, quote, um, 
Where is it? Oh, here it is. Quote, she has a gross and perverse taste. She has numerous kindred, indigent and hungry. You know, eugenicists later on would have a field day with, with a family like this, I suppose. They, though in the 19th, 19th and 20th century, eugenicists loved to look at these families of debauched, immoral people and, and try to dig out their hereditary and, and propose policies such as euthanizing, not, not euthanizing, but sterilizing, sorry, sterilizing the, the family to prevent them from having another generation of, of morons. Um, but he leaves the family. He actually tries to get help from his father to be apprenticed as a carpenter or, or a little bit of money. And the father's just like, well, if you become a carpenter, that's great. But, you know, whoever you're apprenticed to will pay for your room and board. You don't need any money from me. Um, he fears as only real skills in agriculture. So after the end of page, uh, chapter two, we learn that basically Arthur Mervyn goes out as a blank slate. So here is... I don't know if you want to take this as a metaphor for America, which I'm kind of apt to do in this story. Is this, you know, the point of independence? I don't know. I think it's more the point of of kind of like the colonial period almost, right? Where there's this uh, kind of salutary neglect, right? Where the father is still there, but he ignores him, right? But, it, you know, I, I guess this is the point of independence, right? Where so he, he breaks free of his family. His father is completely on his own. He can't go back. He has no money. He's got like a few coins, but he made those on his own. He, he insists in a later chapter, I think, where he left his books behind, but those books he bought with his own money. So there, he, he owes nothing to his father. He's completely um, on his own from there. So it, it's kind of the blank slate. He doesn't even know anything outside of, of the countryside. So... Um, <clears throat> In chapter three, he takes off to the city with, with nothing. Um, and the kind of the option is to return to farming, retreat to farming, or to try out the city. He quickly spends all his money because of his ignorance of the habits. He gives a lot of it to a, like a, a ferryman. It seems he was a bit duped there. And he gives a lot of it then to like a meal. He goes to an expensive restaurant and he spends the rest of his money. You know, I think he didn't even have to cover his bill, so he had to give everything he had to cover the bill. And instead of going to the cheap places to eat and, and you know, the working class places, I suppose, he goes to a more fancy place. So he has no money. He can't even go back now because he has to beat that ferry again. He has no money to pay the ferry. Um, so he's basically down to total destitution. He even loses his bundle, which has like some clothes and a few other things in it. It also has this picture of a man named Clavering. And so we get the backstory of this man Clavering. And, and basically Arthur Mervyn is regretting and feeling sorrow over losing this portrait, which is his only relic of this, this young man who died. He died three years earlier at Arthur Mervyn's father's house. And he was kind of like a day laborer who stayed there. Here, I'll just read the paragraph, because Clavering comes up a lot in this story. Quote, he gave no distinct account of his family, but stayed in loose terms with, with they that were residents in England, high-born and wealthy. They had denied him the woman he had loved and banished him to America under the penalty of death, if, if he should dare to return. And they had refused him all means of subsidence in foreign lands. He predicted in the wild and declamatory way his own death. He was very skillful at the pencil and drew a portrait in short time before his dissolution presented it to me and charged me to preserve it in remembrance of him. My mother loved the youth because he was amenable and unfortunate, and chiefly because she fancied a very powerful resemblance between his countenance and mine. I was too young to build affection for any rational foundation. I loved him, and for whatever reason, with an ardor unusual at my age, 
and with this portrait I have contributed to prolong and to cherish. So that's what he lost. He doesn't care so much about the other things in the bindle, but he does care about losing this portrait of Clavering. He goes back, he actually, like, he was on a, he's going to go meet someone who could help him get a job or something, and he found out he lost the bindle, so he goes back to find it. The bindle's missing, and it's not there anymore, and he misses this meeting with this person. And finally, though, he, he's looking around, and this weird guy invites him, you know, over to his house to, to help him out. And there's a couple scenes in the novel where he's trying to sell his, his, his meager skills to different people who might employ him. And this is the first one, so he's the least experienced in doing this. And he gets invited over to this, this guy's house. And that, that's chapter three. In chapter four, he's taken, he's taken to this house and put in a room and then locked in the room and he realized he's being like scammed or murdered or robbed or something kidnapped maybe he's going to be human trafficked right i mean i think this stuff went on in in america you know not just to especially this there was this was um when you still had a digital servitude right so you could kind of you know maybe make money in human trafficking this way of course a lot of it was with black people in slavery uh, but there was this this indentured servitude too, so there may have been a market in it. I don't think it's ever really fully explained what this weird guy was trying to do with Arthur Mervyn by locking him in. But he's he tries to get out, but before he gets out, he does escape this situation. But before he gets out, he hears a conversation taking place with a, a man and a woman. Right? There's also a baby in the room or something that he he listens to, and at first he's scared of the noise, and he finds out it's a baby. Anyways, he starts to hear this conversation, and it goes a bit like this. Quote, A large company had assembled that evening in their house. They criticized the character and manner of several. At last, the husband said, What think you of Nabu, the Nabu, especially when he talked of his riches? How artfully he encourages the notion of his poverty. Yet not a soul believes him. I cannot, for my part, account for that scheme of his. I have to suspect that his wealth flows from a bad source, since he's so studious in concealing it. Perhaps, after all, said the lady, you are mistaken as to his wealth. Impossible, exclaimed the other. Mark how he lives. Have I not seen his bank account? He deposits, his deposits since he's been here amount to not less than half a million. Heaven grant that it be so, said the lady with a sigh. I shall think with less aversion to your scheme if poor Tom's fortune be made and he had not the worst, but, or but little worse on that account. I should think it on the whole best. That, replied he, is what reconciles me to the scheme. To him, 30,000 is nothing. Unquote. So they're talking about defrauding or scamming this guy who's known only as the, the Naboop. Now this is one of those words you know, readers have to look up, right? Uh, a Naboop is, is simply a conspicuously wealthy man. Usually someone who made their money like out in the East, right? So someone who just appears as rich from the East is, is a Naboop. Right. And, and someone who's really wealthy, but that wealth just seems to come out of nowhere, usually some from foreign source. So that's, that's where the term comes from. Um, so here's a suspicious, suspicious conversation. And so then he, he escapes the room. He, he loses his shoes. So now he has even less. He's destitute again, even without his shoes. But he still has a strong belief in the work ethic. And that, that comes through a lot. In, in this part of the story. Quote, by some trans transition, it occurred to me that the supply of my most urgent wants might be found in some inhabitants of this house. 
I needed a present a few cents, and what were a few cents to a tenant of a mansion like this? I had an invincible aversion to being called a beggar, but I regarded with still more antipathy the vocation of a thief. To this alternative, however, I was now reduced. I must either steal or beg, unless indeed assistance could be procured under the notion of a loan. So he's very much bothered by the fact that he's kind of on the dole or he's begging. He wants to kind of make his money upright, so he wants to be in the service of someone else. So finally he goes to beg for a loan, and instead of getting a loan, he's taken in by this man. And, and he seems, apparently he's impressed when he quotes Shakespeare, and he, he says he can write. And he has, that's his only skill, is with the pen. And that, he's like, well, that's enough. You can be in my service, and we can, you can live with me. I'll give you housing, clothing, and you can live there. What seems to really impress him but was a quote from Shakespeare where he says, and he wrote it down actually to show off his Penmanship, he says, my poverty, but not my will, consents. Which, of course, is, uh, in, you know, that he's in a situation. He, he's willing to do things because of poverty demands it, not because he really wills it. And this is something that really inspires this character, who turns out to be Welbeck, the character that Wortley earlier on said that had defrauded him. So this is, this is the introduction of Welbeck into the story. So he offers him housing, clothes, and a job. And, and basically to be in a service. <clears throat> when he's brought in, he's, he's brought into a room during breakfast one day, and the, this, he says, this woman is going to come in and eat with us, but don't really talk to her, and she's my daughter. And, and it's another kind of bizarre relationship we're introduced to. And immediately we're told that this is not the normal relationship between a father and a daughter. In the continents of Welbeck, this is a quote. There was something else than sympathy with the astonishment and distress of the lady. But I cannot interpret these additional tokens. When her attention was engrossed by Welbeck, her eyes were frequently vagrant or downcast. Her cheeks contracted a deeper hue, and her breathing was almost prolonged in a sigh. These were marks on which I made no comment at the time. My, thought, my own situ situation was calculated to breed confusion in my thoughts and awkwardness in my gesture. So it seems there's something weird about this relationship between these two people. That's not being totally, um, they're not being told truthfully by, by the by his his host. So chapter six, we, we see Arthur Mervyn really enamored by the house, and he starts to have all these delusions of grandeur. I suppose he's dreaming of a future where he can he can live here with, with the family make it for himself, maybe marry the daughter, he even thinks at some point. He, he has all these different fantasies about what, how good his life would be, how good his fortune is, and how if he does his service to this man who seems to be upright mostly, he'll be able to, to move up in society. So, you know, one night he goes out, not long after, I think it might be the same night that he, that he had that earlier breakfast, but he goes out and explores the city a little bit. And then he, he turns around to go back home and return to the house. And he asks someone about the house. He comes to approach and he asks someone about it. And they get these kind of weird answers about who's in there. And the guy says, like, well, it's the guy that means Mr. Matthew who's just a gentleman. And he walks around. But he's not married. That's the thing. When they ask about his marriage, it's like, well, he's not married. Well, then there's no explanation about where this daughter comes from if he's a bachelor. And so we got... Um, a little bit more confusion and then they ask like well is there anyone else there and he says well there's the niece his niece lives there and his niece's husband's there 
and that they've been there for a couple of years. So they're getting stories from the people of the town that contradict the story that Welbeck has been giving them, giving Arthur Mervyn. So chapter seven. Uh, so well, once again, Welbeck invites Arthur Mervyn for dinner. And again, the same woman arrives and she doesn't say anything or explain too much to him. But Welbeck starts to tell him about the work that he's going to be doing in his service and that his first job is going to be to deliver a letter. And he has to deliver a letter to a specific house and his, his instructions are to just like leave it with the servant and then, then come home. So he goes to this lady's house. And what's this lady's, lady's name again? I think we find out later. Yeah, her name's Wentworth. <clears throat> but so at this lady's house, though, he, he 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 knocks on the door, and the servant comes in. And instead of giving the letter to him to the servant, the servant's like, well, "I'll get her down. And you just wait in the lobby, or wait in the, the you know the, the room." And he goes in. Now he's already breaking the rules that Welbeck gave him for the. He had very specific instructions. While he's there, he sees this picture on the mantelpiece. And the picture is of the Clavering picture, the very one that he lost. It's a unique picture. It's not a copy. It can't be a print. It's the very, very same picture that he had lost in his bindle earlier. So that's really bizarre. And he starts to not think about so much about his job for uh, Welbeck. He wants to have an explanation for this. Where did this picture come from? How does she know him? You know, does she have the rest of the bundle? And, you know, all that, where, where it came from. And he finally, this woman comes down and he starts to ask her about this. And of course, he doesn't want to accuse her of stealing his bundle or being too aggressive. So he's a bit coy about it. But he does ask her. And eventually, she explains that someone found it and recognized the, the, the picture as, as having this relationship to Mrs. Wentworth. And gave it to her. And she's really suffering. She really feels sorrow and anguish over this. And Welbeck is not supposed to say anything about his past. He's supposed to be completely an anonymous figure in this job. So he can't really explain too much about how he knows his Clavering figure. But she's suffering so much for news about Clavering. Because when he says, you know, I kind of know this guy. She's like, well, where do you know him from? What's his fate? Where is he, is he around? Whatever. And so he kind of very cagely gives, tries to give answers to satisfy her questions um, but anyways he he botches the job he botches he's not able to get the picture back and and he ends up leaving uh, with not doing anything properly by the book as at least as Welbeck wanted well in chapter eight Mervyn goes back to to Welbeck and explains what happened and explains how he didn't really follow the instructions very well and and Welbeck kind of gets as much of the story as he can out of it and Arthur Mervyn starts to really think that there's something strange about this like what's his relationship with this foreign lady what is his actually service what's he being paid for what's his relationship with this girl is there anything have to do with Clavering it's all very confused in his in his mind but Welbeck seems to kind of move on and says okay well now we're going to a, a party with Wortley. Now, Wortley is the guy, of course, that's Dr. Stevens' friend, the one who originally identified Arthur Mervyn as having an association with Welbeck. Now, this whole party is just talked about like in one brief paragraph, and basically he's there and they leave, and Welbeck is very happy. Quote, his eyes sparkled, his features expanded into benign serenity, and his wanted reserve gave place to a torrent-like and overflowing elucation. 
So whatever happened, it was good for, for Welbeck, right? And, and there was some kind of scam, scheme that took place. And, you know, Welbeck, some kind of fraudster, a forgerer. He's, he's involved in some kind of schemes. They're not all fully explained, it seems to me, but there's a lot that's, that's kind of left to the imagination of, of the reader. But mostly in this chapter, we have Arthur Mervyn thinking about this relationship. He's starting to have doubts about Welbeck. And he thinks about this, particularly this relationship between Welbeck and this girl, this woman. And here's what he, he basically comes to the conclusion, they can't be related. They can't be father and daughter because they don't look alike, right? The child doesn't resemble the parents. There's nothing in common, no features in common that, that would suggest parentage between these two. So he kind of has this doubt. And later on, he, he comes, he learns that in fact, Welbeck actually had seduced her. So he's some kind of thief, he's a seducer. He, he's this woman, Clemenza, is her name, Clemenza Lodi. We don't really learn that till later though. But, you know, he's done that. He's, he's kind of all involved in crimes, right? Well, here's how Arthur Mervyn relates this realization that he's some kind of womanizer. Quote, this had been the source of sufficient anguish, but this was not all. I recollected that the claims of a parent had been urged. Would you believe that these claims were now admitted and that they heightened the inquity of Welbeck into the blackest and most stupendous of all crimes? These ideas were necessarily transient. Conclusions were more comfortable to appearances succeeded. This lady might have lately been reduced to widowhood. The recent loss of beloved companion would sufficiently account for her dejection and they make her present situation comparable with duty. But this new train of ideas, I was somewhat comforted. I saw the folly of precipitous inferences and the injustice of my atrocious imputations and acquired some degree of patience in my present state of uncertainty, end quote. So he, he kind of talks, he thinks his way around the worst of Welbeck, but certainly the ideas in his head that, that Welbeck is a, a seducer of sorts. <clears throat> now, Arthur Mervyn, the next important event is that Arthur Mervyn finds this letter that's that's written, addressed to the Nabup. So again, this term, Nabup, meaning this, this rich man who got, made his money overseas. And of course, this is of course connecting to that weird conversation you overheard when he was locked in that room, you know, where they were talking about robbing from the Nabup. So this seems to be Welbeck. He seeks out Welbeck for some kind of explanation and he cannot find, find Welbeck. In chapter nine, though, Welbeck does return and Mervyn confronts him. And Welbeck explains that he, 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 he treats Martha Mervyn here as a bit of a child and says, I have to teach you about like the cruelty and meanness of the world. That's part of you growing up. And you're gonna have to learn that the world is not nice. And, and we're all kind of involved in kind of the dirtiness and the, the sinfulness of, of the world, right? When I read this, I was thinking of like the separate spheres ideology which was, of course, part of, of American history, this idea that like women are in the, the sphere of the home, which is pure and honest and faithful, and then you got the realm outside there, like the realm of business and capital and, and politics, and that was all kind of dirty and gross, and that was for men, right? So women really had an essential role in this in kind of maintaining the purity of the family, right? And that, that's kind of what Welbeck is saying to Mervyn. It's like, you got to understand this world is you know, is pretty horrible. 
And even goes farther to say, like, I hired you with kind of nefarious purposes. Quote, I have detained you in my service partly for your own benefit, but chiefly for mine. I intended to inflict upon you injury and to do you good. Neither of these ends can I now accomplish, unless the lessons which my example may inculcate shall inspire you with fortitude and arm you with caution. And then Welbeck begins to go into his, his past, and he tells his story. And he's going to do it over like two and a half chapters, go back and tell his own story about what happened to him. And Welbeck believes strongly that he was driven by poverty to a life of crime. That's the story he's trying to give to Arthur Mervyn. Now, of course, this is supposed to parallel Arthur Mervyn himself. We know Arthur Mervyn is poor, and he's trying to live an upright life. He's trying to get a nice job on a farm, to make his money by his labor, to pay his debts. So he's trying to be honest, and Welbeck is the complete opposite. But their backgrounds have some commonalities in that they both kind of couldn't make it anymore at home. They had to move on in their, their life. We see a couple, uh, we see another reference to the work ethic, for instance, mentioned here. And it's inverted in Welbeck's case. Welbeck says, I possess no means of subsistence. I was unknown to my neighbors. I desired to remain unknown. I was unqualified for manual labor by all the habits of my life. But there was no choice between punerary and diligence, between honorable labor and cr criminal inactivity. I mused incessantly on the forlornness of my condition. Hour after hour passed, and the horrors of one began to encompass me, encompass me, end quote. And so given the same choice that Mervyn has, he chooses to crime. But you never really see Mervyn thinking, I can either work hard and, and struggle and be honest, or I can be a criminal. For Mervyn, it's always like, do I work in the city or do I work in the countryside? But there's never this conscious choice of criminality. For Welbeck, there is. For Welbeck, it's either I work or I, I make the money by crime. If I can't make it by working, I'm going to move to crime. Now, Welbeck also confesses something else in this chapter to Arthur Mervyn, that he, he essentially seduced a woman. So it's the sister of a friend of his, and this friend turns out to be this man named Watson. And the sister was married, but the, the husband was abroad, gone somewhere. And so he relates, in kind of cagey language, how he, how he essentially seduces her. He says, I reflect with astonishment and horror on the steps which led to her degradation and to my calamity. In, in the high career of passion, all consequences were overlooked. She was the dupe of the most adiguous sophistry and the grossest delusion. And I was a slave to sensual impulses and voluntary blindness. End quote. So he admits he essentially rapes or seduces this this woman, and we, you know, it's already hinted at that he seduced that woman he's claiming to be his daughter. So it's not a unknown thing for him. And but this is a married woman who has this this brother who can seek out revenge. So that's going to be an important in in the rest of uh, west of Welbeck's story. But he's not a good guy. I mean, that's what's being made clear here. And he's really supposed to be a foil for Arthur Mervyn, who's never has these impure thoughts. Really, he, he's drawn. To, he ends up in bad places, um, but he is, doesn't really know what he's doing. He's just kind of dragged along. <clears throat> so in chapter 10, we learn how Welbeck made his money. And Welbeck helps a young man with yellow fever. And he dies, but he gives him this money. He tells him where his money's hidden. He's got these banknotes hidden in, in, in a place. And in fact, he's got banknotes hidden in a couple places, but he can't tell. He, he dies before he can tell Welbeck where the rest of the money is. But he leaves him like his manuscripts and he leaves him this money. 
And he says, I want you to, you know, this money is my sister's. I want you to give the money to, to his sister. And now Welbeck, of course, justifies stealing it after this guy dies. And then he takes on this new identity of Welbeck. So his fortune comes from basically stealing it from a dead man who trusted him to pass it on to his, his family. He does find the sister. He finds the sister in a destitute state, but he doesn't give her any of the money. But he does bring her into the household. So this is, this is Clemenza Lodi. This is that woman that he impregnates and seduces that, that comes to dinner every once in a while with, with Arthur Mervyn. So she's there. So she kind of enjoys the wealth, but doesn't get it directly. And Welbeck never tells her about this money, that this money is hers. In chapter 11, though, we learn that Welbeck really can't manage his life very well, that he quickly spends outside of his means. As a Nabub, he has to spend pretty aggressively. He doesn't have a means of, of replenishing his financial stock. He, he doesn't know anything about that. So he just ends up spending the money until there's none left. To keep up appearances, though, to keep up the image of himself as a rich man, and remember what the rumors were about him. The rumors were that he was like a millionaire. And, and a millionaire in like... 18th century dollars, right? It's a massive wealth. So he has to keep up these airs and keep up the appearances, and that's what leads him to becoming a con artist. So he, he began with kind of a shipping insurance scheme, which is described in some detail. But it's at this point that he meets Mervyn. And the Mrs. Wentworth scheme that he was trying, he just wanted Arthur Mervyn to drop the letter off, but that was all part of his scheme to get her money. And she's actually the landlord of of Welbeck's house, the house that he's renting. So there was some scheme to get money from her. And I don't think that's fully described. I, I Actually, I don't think too many of these schemes are very well described. The closest we get is the insurance shipping scheme is described, but there's a lot that Brown doesn't really fully explain to the reader. So this brings us pretty much up to the present, at least to the, to the present in Arthur Mervyn's re retelling of the story. Yet, one more thing happened while Mervyn was like gone, and that is Watson showed up. Watson uh, came for revenge for how his, his sister was treated, and they end up getting a fight together. And he describes the battle as kind of two pistols went off at the same time, kind of a cinema, cinematic image. Two pistols go off at the same time, and, and he survived, but Watson died. Right, so he's trying to justify the essentially the murder of Watson, who came for for vengeance. And and that's where it's going to be left at. Basically, the next thing he's going to say is, "Well, I now I need you to help me deal with this body." And so poor Arthur Mervyn is forced to to help him cover up a crime. Yeah, so I I love how Welbeck here describes the incident. He says, "Quote: both, both triggers were drawn at the same time. Both pistols were discharged. Mine was negligently raised." Some, such is the untoward chance that presides over human affairs, such is the malignant destiny by which my steps have ever been pursued. The bullet whistled harmlessly past me, leveled by an eye that never before failed, and with so small an interval between us, I escaped, but my blind and random shot took place at his heart. There is the fruit of this disastrous meeting. The catalogue of death is thus completed. Thou sleepest, Watson. Thy sister is at rest, so art thou vow. Thy vows of revenge are at an end. It was not reserved for thee, but thy own sister and thy anger, Avenger. And then Arthur Mervyn says, Welbeck's measure of transgression is now full. In his own hand must execute the justice that is due to him. I don't know, maybe that was Welbeck speaking for himself too. 
But anyways, that's how chapter 11 ends with uh, this body of Watson. So, you know, Welbeck is a seducer. He's a thief, a con artist, a forgerer, and a, and a murderer now. He's all these bad things, all the things that Irvin didn't want to be, but he's all caught up in it now. He's an accomplice. And that's, you know, what Wortley sees. Wortley sees him as an accomplice of Welbeck. And, and he's trying to explain his way around this to, to Dr. Stevens, to convince Dr. Stevens that he's not this, you know, this, this criminal, uh, criminal accomplice of, of Welbeck. So that, that does it um, for the first part of, of this novel, the first quarter or so of the novel. It's a really fun one. I, I do really urge uh, people to read this one. I, I think it's got a lot of fun in it. And I really like it as a novel of the early American Republic, a novel struggling with the conflict between urban and rural, between the countryside and the city, between independence and dependence, between uh, legality and in, in law, right? Uh, there's a book, I've never read it actually, a history book called Counterfeiters Republic, which is about early American history and about the, you know, just the, the kind of the, how currency wasn't regulated and there's all these forgerers and counterfeiters, you know, putting, you know, doing this kind of stuff. In, in the early American Republic. And it was just because it was before, you know, modern states really had, could regulate this stuff better. So, you know, it's, it's kind of the cost of freedom, I guess. The old, old saying, you know, you, if you give too much people too much, you can create a totally authoritarian society and abolish crime and have everything ordered really well, but you kind of lose something when you do that, right? You lose, you lose that, you lose your freedom. But the cost of freedom may be, you know, there's going to be some, there's going to be people like Walbeck floating around. So, um, like Whelan, this novel is fairly explicit sexually, especially for the time, dealing with issues of, of adultery and extramarital sex. In Whelan, it was more implied on Clara's point of view, but certainly um, Carwin was involved in those kinds of activities with the maid. Um, here we have Welbeck being the seducer and, you know, and we also got we also see a lot about just how people moving around, people from different nationalities. There's a lot of foreign presence, and how that kind of breaks up families and and creates kind of complex relationships between people. That's all going on in the story too. I I think it's really fun, and, and I think there's a lot we can get out of it. It's it's a nice little snapshot of of the early American environment, both intellectually, both kind of in a symbolic way, as well as in a you know, and actually a it's also a fairly accurate description of the way things often were in this kind of frontier culture that was just making its way into the cities and, and into the frontier after in the years after independence. Um, so yeah, that, that's going to do it for this episode. Please leave your own thoughts about Arthur Mervyn if you read this novel below. I, I'd love to hear from, from you about it. Um, if you have any other questions or comments or suggestions, please send them to my email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, and that'll be it. I'll be back next time with the rest of part one of Arthur Mervyn, the second 100 pages or so, so that which will cover, that will cover the, the yellow fever epidemic that hits Philadelphia. And we also see how our, Arthur Mervyn gets away from Welbeck and, and finds the hope for a better life in the, in the future. So I look forward to talking with you about that in, um, in, a, in, a, in an upcoming episode. Thanks as always for listening, and I'll see you next time. Faces come out of the rain when you're strange. No one
What's your name? When you're strange, when you're strange, when you're...